I apologize now for moving it. I He's he actually spent several hours just <laughs> shoot just doing it just right. He's gonna go back in and edit my stuff that we've recorded in the past now to make me look yeah. bad. Okay, Senator Mike Lee, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be with you. And you've gone through cold rain and snow, and it's it's approaching a monsoon out there. And I warn our listeners and our viewers that if you hear a sound that sounds like a truck, it's just rain hitting this tin roof that was built around 1860 or something. So, We had snow in Utah earlier this week, and just about an hour ago I was with my colleagues in the Senate and everybody's phones went off at once for the flash flood warning. So yeah, and severe weather happening all around. It's 110 in Arizona. Mm-hmm. So it's weird out there. Good times. But uh, we are gathering the day before Constitution Day, sort of. We're pretending that it's the day before Constitution Day. And uh, we are um, talking about the premiere of a series that you have been working with, with us, Free the People, and also the Federalist Society, I think we've been working on it about a year now. It's been a little bit postponed because of COVID and, and all of the, the drama happening in 2020. But it, it seems like a completely appropriate time to talk about the Constitution and why it still matters. The, the series is called uh, The Constitution Line by Line, and it stars you. And we figured that you were a good guy to do this because you've been marinating in the Constitution um, supposedly since you were in diapers. I don't know if that's exactly true, but you, you've been thinking about this stuff a long time. Yeah, I mean, I like to say since I was in diapers. Um, I, uh, one might argue that since I was in utero, but uh, th- that brings up a whole uh, separate set of topics. Whether infants, before they're born, can hear and understand, I don't know. But for you, um, you would sit around a dinner table with your dad and your family, and you would argue about things like Article 1. Right. And of course, every family in America does that, as they should. We certainly did that in my family. It was a rite of passage. It was something we enjoyed doing uh, and and something I think every family ought to consider doing simply because it reminds people of their place in the world. It reminds Americans of their relationship to their government. Perhaps most importantly, it reminds them that government isn't everything. Government is just the official collective use of coercive force. It's nothing more than that. And the Constitution consists of a set of rules about how official collective force may and may not be utilized. A, a document of, of unique genius, I think you believe. Yes, of unique genius written by wise men who I believe were raised up by God to that very purpose. Uh, these were unusually gifted individuals who happened to be living on the same part of the same planet at the same time. We're very fortunate that they were brought together at that time uh, in defense of liberty. They really, uh, most of them, I think, had relatively little to gain from the revolutionary effort and then later from the constitutional effort, other than the fact that they wanted a land that would be better for their posterity. Certainly would have been easier for them in many respects for them to have come up with a different, more efficient system of government. Uh, And it probably would have inured to their political and financial benefit to have concentrated power uh, more than they did. Instead, they dispersed it, which is exactly what needed to happen. Yeah. I, I sort of pined for the days when our political leaders would put a little skin in the game. And in this case, they were putting their heads on the block. Yes. And I, th- I think few people that don't know the history appreciate that they were sacrificing everything, their property, their, their families, and potentially their lives if, if King George got a hold of them. Yeah, absolutely. This was their uh, their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor, and that there was no exaggeration to say that. In those moments in particular, it would have been tempting to fall for uh, what my wife and I have come to call emergency socialism, which is also known as socialism. I mean, any time government exceeds its bounds and starts doing things that government can't do and government isn't supposed to do, it's always under the guise of an emergency. There is always an emergency that is at the heart of a drift in that direction. And that's why the Constitution's never been in more important than it is right now. Yeah. I mean, it, the, uh, the, the emergency socialism thing, and I'm not going to ask you to name names, but it strikes me that based on my count, there's maybe a handful 
of senators and congressmen that haven't fallen for emergency socialism. And, and the thing that I heard years ago when I worked on the Hill is we just have to get through this election. Just if we can just sell out this once strategically, then next year we can do everything right. That's right. That's but, right. But as you point out in, in the series, particularly in the House of Representatives, um, they're always running for election. And the founders wanted it that way because they wanted the accountability. That's right. It's just like uh, St. Augustine during his conversion to Christianity, who famously uttered the prayer, Lord, grant me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> um, I want to go back because I want to I want to establish your, your, your bona fides as, as a guy that really un- understands the Constitution. And we weren't really joking about the fact that in, in, in diapers you were, you were learning about these things. Uh, talk a little bit about your dad and, and how he instilled those, those constitutional values into you. My dad uh, was a man named Rex Lee. He grew up in a tiny, tiny town in St. John's, Arizona. Ended up um, going to law school. I went to the University of Chicago Law School and then clerked for Justice Byron White. Uh, later in his career, after uh, practicing as an attorney for uh, a while, he ended up founding the law school at Brigham Young University. Later served as the assistant attorney general over the civil division in the Ford administration and the, and the solicitor general uh, uh, under... Uh, uh, the Reagan administration. Um, later in life, uh, after that, he became the president of Brigham Young University. All along, he established and maintained a Supreme Court practice, uh, having ar- argued uh, about 60 cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court during his career. I was fortunate enough to have seen many of those, started attending court with him when I was about 10, originally as a, an effective way to miss school with the blessing of my parents. I used parents. to go to baseball instead. But. Well, yeah, I mean, we went to baseball games too, but life wouldn't be complete without Supreme Court arguments. <laughs> and, uh, and that always did bleed over to the dinner table, and, and you, just, you just thought it was normal to think about constitutional principles. Yeah, yeah, I did. And, you know, uh, while I was growing up, my dad wrote several books. He, he was also a, a law professor and taught constitutional law. He wrote a book about the Equal Rights Amendment, and he dedicated that book to my mother and my grandmothers and all of my sisters. My brother and I complained that we weren't mentioned, and so he wrote another book called A Lawyer Looks at the Constitution, and he dedicated that to me and to my brother, and um, uh, we both went into the family profession. It's not that we're particularly good at it, it's that we don't know how to do anything else. So you really had, you had no hope to, to be a normal person. You were, you were gonna be a lawyer instead. Yeah, I mean, it's what people do, uh, it's how you protect the Constitution, supposedly. Um, but but you're, not, you're not like most lawyers, right? You're, you're different. I'm one of the good lawyers. Yeah, you're I one mean, of... Uh, look, there are as many kinds of lawyers as there are people. There are good ones, there are bad ones. Uh, there are those with great skill who are doing the wrong things, and there are those with skill who are doing the right things. I, I like to believe I'm doing the right things, and... Uh, regardless of what skill I possess at any given moment. So, and the reason I'm digging deep and perhaps uh, deeply offending you is that I, I want to establish that before you became a politician, you actually did constitutional lawyering. So, yep. you, so you went to law school and then you proceeded to do, do that work. Yeah, I, I, I served as a law clerk at the U.S. Supreme Court, clerking for Justice Alito. I worked in appellate and Supreme Court litigation and worked on uh, briefs on uh, a wide variety of constitutional issues, everything from uh, religious freedom to the dormant commerce clause and everything in between, uh, made for a very interesting and rewarding career. And I met you in 2010. I think it was 10, was it wasn't 2000. It was 2009 when 2009. we actually met the first time. Yeah. And you were this uh, uh, wild-eyed constitutionalist that was driving around in a camper across the state of Utah, thinking that you were going to unseat a, a longtime forever Republican senator. And at first I thought you were nuts, but then the more you talked, I'm like, I want to be nuts too. Yeah, well, I, I, I remember coming in to visit you because I, I wasn't actually a candidate for the Senate at that point, but this was in the f- early fall or late summer of 2009. And I had been I had uh, spent most of the year 2009 giving speeches about federalism and separation of powers around the state of Utah, a topic that I didn't really think would ever gain much popularity, but somehow inexplicably it did. And that movement to put on these speeches ended up morphing into a Senate campaign. And uh, 
it, it, it was sort of during that transition period where I was thinking about running for the Senate that I came to pay a visit to you. I understood that my idea was a crazy one, and I, I think you might have been one of the first people I talked to who didn't throw me out of the room as a madman. I assume someone said, go talk to Kibby. He's crazy, too. Yeah, I think that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, they, they said, well, you know, yeah. Birds of a feather flock together, so yeah. go talk to this guy. Always, you know, one of my biggest regrets, and those were the heady days of the Tea Party when um, um, defending limited government and balanced budgets and, and the Constitution were were popular. And um, one of my great regrets from the Tea Party days is, is so many activists would come up to me, and I'm sure you, and say, what should I? What should I be reading? I have this this gut instinct that the government's gotten out of control, and that that we need to step up and defend our liberties. But I I want to fill in the blanks, and we never got around to that part because I think I think perhaps wrongly we got too consumed by politics, and we didn't have time to sort of focus on the ideas. So in some ways, fast forward many years later. Um, the series that we're doing is an attempt to, to right that wrong and make sure that every American has an opportunity to understand the ba- basic architecture, the business plan of, of America and, and why, why it is such a, a great country. Because um, my fear, and perhaps yours, is that most people don't know this because they were never presented an opportunity in school to learn about the Constitution. That's right. That's right. And the things that we're talking about in this series... Uh, f- uh, focus on the words themselves. The words themselves, uh, nearly two and a half centuries later, are still pretty easy to understand, as long as you understand the context, as long as you uh, understand how they've been interpreted, how they've been applied, how they were understood at the time. So that's why I think this conversation is so helpful and so important. These things, while once more commonly understood and while once widely taught in our school system in America, uh, have now been neglected. People are instead being fed this narrative that suggests um, the job of the government is to make everything right or everything fair or or everything equal safe. somehow. Safe is a popular safe. Thing right yeah, now. yeah, exactly. Because because they're important things, and our job is to identify the important things and then handle them so that people feel safe. That really disregards the whole point. Um, what's important for us to understand about the federal government is that it has limited powers. It's there only for a few purposes. It'd be an overstatement to say it's like a homeowners association with the military, but it would be closer uh, to the truth than the current societal understanding seems to reflect. Uh, We would understand much better as a society why we're $27 trillion in debt and why we have a federal government that makes people work months out of every year just to pay their federal taxes only to be told uh, we're $27 trillion in debt. If people just had this basic understanding of what government's for, what the federal government specifically is for, and how the federal government is set up. So last time you were on the show, which was um, well over a year ago, it's hard to measure time anymore since I've been uh, holed up in my house under permanent lockdown my tyrannical mayor is is colluding with tyrannical governors to take any pretense of my freedoms away. But I've just gone down a rabbit hole that we can't go down. Oh, we, we actually could. We could tie that into the enclave clause of Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, which is how we're going to take her power away. But we'll get to that another time. I, well, I, we need to do a whole show about that because I'm feeling like uh, a little revolution is appropriate here. But um, the last time you were on the show, you were talking about our lost declaration which is i believe your most recent book yes and the point there which is probably relevant as we interpret the constitution is that the spirit the ethos that that shrouded the the constitution and and enveloped the the founders um really is found in the declaration and that that radically individualists um we're going to give power to the people um and 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 very stingily limit what government gets to do that was such a profoundly different idea in our creation yeah it 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 was a different idea than existed at the time it's a different idea than exists now yeah but it's the idea around which the entire constitution is based sometimes i like to say that they they the the picture frame is the constitution the constitution is there to protect 
liberty, uh, protect our common shared belief system that there is immense value uh, and eternal potential in the individual human soul and that we as a society want to protect that from the abuses associated with the use of coercive force. And so to protect that, we, we came up with this Constitution. But the, the picture itself, what's being protected by the Constitution, is the Declaration of Independence. So let's let's dig in. And this, I should uh, say that this project, at least at this point, is focused on Article 1. Um, we've partnered with the Federalist Society's project on Article 1. Um, but there's a lot of pretty important stuff in Article 1, so I, I, think, I think that's okay. Article 1, Section 1 is the first episode of our series. And um, what do you think is most important there, um, and particularly when it comes to this, uh, the, the regulatory state that is, has become, I don't think you use these words, but I feel like there's a fourth branch of government yeah. that we can't fire? Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly right. Uh, in some ways, the most important part of the whole Constitution is the very first clause, Article 1, Section 1, Clause 1. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall, shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. Those words mean a lot. They mean that insofar as federal law is appropriate, federal action is appropriate, the power to legislate, which means the power to establish the policy, the, the thou shouts of federal law, um, will be vested in a Congress. And that Congress is the branch of government most accountable to the people at the most regular intervals. You can fire uh, every member of the House of Representatives every two years. You can fire one-third of the Senate every two years. That's why that power is and should be entrusted only to that branch of government, because it's the most accountable, because it happens to be the most dangerous power. We like to think of the the three branches of government as being co-equal. And in theory, they are. In reality, the most dangerous branch by far is Congress. The framers understood that. And that's why they limited the power and they limited the way in which that power could be exercised and the people entitled to exercise it. We violate that every time we outsource the task of lawmaking. The easiest way to think of this is if, if you and I were Congress, and you and I decided, you know, we're tired of voters complaining about what the law says. So instead, we're just going to pass a law that grants somebody else the lawmaking power. So we, we pass a law that says um, we shall have good law in America, and we hereby delegate the task of making additional laws to the herewith created American Commission for the Establishment of Good Laws, which will be vested with the power to make and interpret and enforce good laws in America. We would be off the hook. We would also be violating the, both the letter and the spirit of the Constitution because we would no longer be accountable, even though we're the only people who can be held accountable for making laws in our system. When, did, um, when do you think that, and maybe slippage started the, the day after the Constitution was enacted, but when did, when did Congress really start abandoning their constitutional responsibility to, to write laws and, and, and create these, these vague mandates that, that unleash the bureaucratic hordes? Well, there have been fits and starts throughout the history of our republic. There is no question in my mind that the biggest transformational era uh, occurred in the 1930s. In other words, what exists today really was set in motion uh, during the FDR administration, the New Deal era. Um, uh, starting with the first term of Franklin D. Roosevelt, but really accelerating as we got into the early part of the second term of FDR. Um, I trace a whole lot of this to a single moment, a single case decided by the Supreme Court on April 12th, 1937, a case called the NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin Steele. Um, in that case, the Supreme Court reinterpreted one provision of Article 1, Section 8, the Commerce Clause, broadly enough to give Congress the power to regulate just about any, any activity as long as it was economic in nature. Um, and once that happened, Congress had immense power and power to regulate things that previous to that point had been the domain of the states. Labor, manufacturing, agriculture, mining, these are all economic activities that take place in one state at one time, typically. But all of a sudden, Congress had power to regulate anything within those areas that it wanted to. Congress panicked and said, we've got to start shifting this. So by the end of the 1930s, Congress was shifting 
to a very dramatic degree the lawmaking power through these vague laws, and it's continued to this very day, and that's a problem. So it 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 uh, is all of that is preceded, I believe, by the push by the progressive movement to make um, bureaucrats unfireable. Yes. And, and, and the vision was, and it, it's a very incredibly elitist vision, but, you know, the vision was, you know, there are certain people who went to the right schools and came from the right families and, and well, they're just smarter than the rest of us. Experts. So, so we need, the experts, we need to put them in power and make sure they can't be fired by anybody. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, I think it's a, it's a wicked idea um, and, and very contra the, the founders. Right, absolutely. And, and it's, it's uh, also quite distinctively a Wilsonian idea. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was the, the first true academian American president. And he was an elitist. He was a racist. And he uh, also believed strongly in the need for uh, governing through experts. And while he was not as successful as Franklin D. Roosevelt would be a few administrations later, um, he sort of started to set this in motion. Interestingly enough, uh, when, when Franklin D. Roosevelt was serving as governor of New York, he made a statement. I don't remember the quote exactly, but it, it, he uttered words to the effect that, you know, as I look at forms of tyranny that have arisen around, throughout the world, I've concluded that if we ever encounter a type of tyranny in America, it will be a kind of soft, gentle, kind-appearing form of tyranny that will appear in the form of experts. Experts who will purport to have the ability to uh, conceive of and remedy each problem um, because of their vast expertise. And they'll consolidate basically all power in the federal government uh, and taking away power that would otherwise have been exercised at the state and local level. That is exactly how it turned out, ironically, somewhat hypocritically under his leadership. Yeah. It, I mean, I feel like uh, particularly today, um, we are suffering under the uh, pretense of knowledge from experts, particularly our, our, our healthcare experts um, within the federal government who, who make these, these sweeping statements as if they understand exactly what we're dealing with with COVID-19. And, and clearly they don't. And any honest scientist would say we can't possibly know enough to decide all of these things, but they, they go ahead and do it anyway. Um, and I think they know better, but they pretend that they know everything. Yeah. And that's part of their shtick, pretending that they know everything and on some level believing that they know everything, or at least that they know better than the unwashed masses, the peasants, meaning the American voters. Uh, is part of how they do what they do. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, the, the emergency is sort of the sine qua non of the drift toward socialism, at least in this country and probably in most countries. But uh, there might be another head of that monster. It's sort of the, 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 the two-headed hydra of the emergency and the expert. Yeah. You've got an emergency in the case of uh, uh, the New Deal era. The, the emergency was, of course... Great Depression. And then you had a field of experts. We've got other emergencies today, the socialists and status of every stripe, label, aroma, flavor, uh, are fond of identifying emergencies and experts. We've got a different set today, and it's accelerating us into that curve, which I find very distressing. I feel like uh, they've struck gold with, with people's genuine concerns about about an unknown virus, but this is this is not a new phenomenon, and and you've you've delineated all sorts of agencies and policies where where the unelected bureaucracy has run amok. Uh, what do we do about it? There's a surprisingly simple solution to all of this, uh, and the simple solution can be found in a set of proposals that include reforms like the RAINS Act. The RAINS Act is an acronym that stands for Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny. Rand Paul is the current lead sponsor of that legislation in the Senate. And the RAINS Act simply says that anytime the uh, federal administrative bureaucracy brings about a new rule imposing new economically significant um, obligations on the part of the public, you know, as, as distinguished from something determining what time the lights go on in this or that federal agency, 
those are not self-executing and they, they must be ratified by a majority vote uh, in both houses of Congress, followed by a signature from the president. If we just passed that, that would get us back on the path toward following the Constitution, at least prospectively. Um, we would uh, start to gravitate back toward the constitutional norm. This would put the American people back in charge of making their own laws. We've been picking on the, the unelected experts, but it strikes me that uh, perhaps a majority in Congress doesn't want that responsibility oh, yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, and I should have made that clear to begin with. This is this is not really the fault of the bureaucrats. This is exactly what happens when you introduce them into the equation. Uh, so while I disagree with all sorts of things that the bureaucrats do from day to day, by and large, these are people who are, in fact, well-educated, well-intentioned, and hardworking, and they're trying to do a job that they were hired to do. They are not the source of the problem. We are, meaning the Congress of the United States is the problem. The problem that we have is that Congress, over time, members of Congress have seen, uh, number one, our power has gotten so great that it's uh, difficult to stay on top of all of it. But perhaps more importantly, and uh, more significantly in recent years, members of Congress have identified a new holy grail. It used to be something else, you know, the, the success stability of the country, the economic strength and vitality of our communities and, and our nation. There is a new holy grail among members of Congress that seems to be longevity in office, perpetual re-election. And for purposes of that, outsourcing the power to an alphabet soup agency is perhaps exactly what they want because it gives us complete deniability. If EPA or the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or the Securities Exchange Commission, or any of the other alphabet soup agencies. They do something stupid, as they do from time to time, because they're human beings. People come to us and complain, oh, look at what happened to me. Members of Congress are proud in that moment of beating their chests, saying angrily, oh, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write them a harshly worded letter. That'll teach them. <laughs> uh, when we really are the problems, because at the heart of all of that is a set of laws that again and again and again has delegated this power to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. Shame on us. One issue that this, this uh, reminds me of an issue that, that you've been very outspoken on since the day you got to the U.S. Senate and a continuingly um, um, horrible problem where Congress has refused to take back its, its, its uh, constitutional responsibility to declare war. And and you, you described that. I saw you once in a Senate hearing where you're describing like the, the great thing about this is that they can, they can sort of do the opposite of what you just said. If, if when we're going to war, they can beat their chest and um, write uh, appropriately vague legislation that, that's a blank check to the executive branch. And then when our men and women start dying, they can point fingers at the executive branch. It's, it's disgusting. It is. It's really nasty. And you're, you're right to draw the parallel there. That's why the, there are multiple fixes that are needed for the broader problem, but they all stem back from the same origin, which is Congress voluntarily relinquishing Congress's authority, whether it's in regulatory power, in war power, in uh, uh, trade restriction power, power to, to adopt tariffs and things like that. These are all examples of where we've handed it over. In the war power area, the consequences can be particularly dire. There are reasons why this power, the power to declare war, was given only to Congress. And they relate to the same reason why we were given exclusive power to legislate. And that is because this is where a lot of damage can occur. Uh, Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 69, I believe it was, explained that this was a key differentiation between the old system in our old country, the London-based government that we had prior to the revolution, and the one that we have now. That is, the monarch uh, under that system had the prerogative to declare war, to take the country to war. It was then up to parliament to figure out how to pay for it. But the monarch got to decide when, where, whether uh, uh, to, to go to war. In our system, the system established under the Constitution, as Hamilton explained in Federalist 69, uh, 
that power would have to be exercised from the first instance uh, uh, by the legislative branch. And, and this, he explained, would be absolutely necessary in a republic like ours. There is, uh, uh, fast forward to just this week, there is um, a new indication that President Trump is, is promising to withdraw troops from Iraq and perhaps Afghanistan as well. I'll ask you the question that I asked Senator Rand Paul a couple weeks ago. Um, for all of the president's rhetoric, um, why aren't we out of Afghanistan and Iraq? He's uh, up against a very real, formidable foe that exists within the, um, I don't know a better way to put it other than describing it the way Dwight Eisenhower referred to it as the military-industrial complex. This is an intimidating force that has um, brought many presidents to their knees and uh, has stopped many presidents from getting out of wars and started a whole lot more wars. But to his credit, this president actually means it. This president is actually taking steps to get us out of those wars. I've, he's uh, committed to me uh, that he's going to get us out of Afghanistan. I believe he's going to get us out of Iraq as well. Uh, look, uh, say what they might about him. His critics ultimately can't refute and have yet to refute the, the statement that I've been making of him, which is that Donald Trump is the least hawkish president who has served during my lifetime, by far. He has uh, uh, taken affirmative steps to end wars that we've been involved in, and he has not gotten us into war that I think most, if not all, modern presidents would have taken us into over the last four years. And that is significant. War is sort of the, uh, uh, it's bad for many, many reasons. It's fraught with all sorts of moral peril. It results in death, in suffering uh, that is unlike anything else we know in this lifetime. And in addition to all of that, it expands government inexorably. It, 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 it's a one-way ratchet. Uh, there was a professor, Porter, at Harvard about 25, 30 years ago who wrote a book called War and the Rise of the State. And his theory is that um, governments grow when there is war and they don't ever completely recede from the high watermark established by their most recent war. Let's move to Article 1, Section 2. And uh, this would be Episode 2. Conveniently, each episode is a section. I think we're going to stick with that that model. Um, there, you talk about a fundamental flaw in Section Two, Article One, um, when the authors define certain people as less than a person, um, unfree people, slaves. Talk about that. The three-fifths compromise, the three-fifths provision in Article I, Section 2, is something we find utterly repugnant because um, human beings are people and as such should be entitled, always have been entitled, uh, but were not entitled under the text of the original Constitution to treatment as individual human beings. The three-fifths compromise was a, 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 a really yucky compromise that was achieved in order to make some headway toward getting the Constitution ratified um, and, and toward um, counting to a degree for purposes of congressional representation um, uh, those people who were in a state of slavery at the time. The interesting thing about that is that we tend to focus when we discuss it on the fact that they were counted as only three-fifths of a person. In some ways, what was most reprehensible was that they counted at all for purposes of representation when these same states were not treating them as people and not giving them the right to vote. And so that's why there's something of a paradox in there. There's also a paradox in it in that the three-fifths compromise in some ways planted the seeds toward what inevitably uh, be, became uh, the liberation movement, uh, the, 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 the movement that would result in the end of slavery for this country. And so um, you hear a lot of constitutional scholars and historians 
arguing um, and in some cases trying to to outdo each other in terms of explaining how they wouldn't have signed the original Constitution because of the three-fifths clause. Now, I understand the argument completely, and they, they raise a point. The fact that it didn't outlaw slavery itself was a grave disappointment to many of the Constitution's firmest advocates, uh, some of whom, by the way, were slave owners themselves. Uh, and yet, um, they did succeed ultimately in abolishing this institution. I'm not sure they could have gotten there, at least with the same degree of speed that they did, had they not ratified the Constitution. And it, it goes back to your point about the Declaration of Independence, that that document, that, that radical defense of the individual um, ultimately demanded that that be fixed. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the, the recognition that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was embedded within the zeitgeist of the American people. That, that was part of what we uh, embraced and understood. That language, in, in turn, was, I believe, based on language taken from something called the, the, the uh, Sheffield uh, uh, Declaration. Um, that recognize some of these Scottish Enlightenment ideals about the universal fundamental equality of human beings. That helped lead us in that direction. We understood that at the time we embraced the Declaration of Independence. We didn't succeed in getting rid of slavery at the time of the drafting and ratification of the Constitution, but we set in motion what would. So what do you say to people, and I think... I think the key is in that that Scottish Enlightenment um, insight, radical insight, that that people matter, individuals matter. But what do you say to people who st- I'm thinking about Black Lives Matter and and the protest today, which has morphed into for some people a, a fundamental critique of the American system, America's founding, and capitalism itself. Uh, what do you say to them? Well, first of all, there are legitimate points that need to be made about our criminal justice system, uh, things that really are rooted in liberty, and the fact that uh, the government exists for the purpose of protecting life, liberty, and property, and nowhere is your life, liberty, and property more potentially threatened than when government steps in, puts you in handcuffs, takes you away and subjects you to harsh treatment of various degrees. So we always need to be looking to reform that system because it's it's riddled with opportunities for abuse. Um, abuse of government power. Yeah, abuse of government power. And that almost always ends up getting exercised by government against those who are uh, uh, not among the most wealthy and well-connected in society, among America's poor and middle class. Uh, that is inevitably the way things turn out. And so I, I completely ag- agree that we should always be looking to reform that system. And it's bad anytime that system is used in a way that's abusive, either along racial lines, as it has been on many occasions in this country throughout its history, um, or, or whether it's on procedural grounds, or whether our laws are put in place without adequate inquiry into what good they're doing. Um, insofar as this argument is morphed into um, an anti-capitalism rant, I, I don't see what good that does. In fact, an anti-capitalism rant, insofar as it can be understood as a pro-government rant, could have the opposite of the effect that we want. We don't want more government. We don't want more official coercive force, which is all government is. What we want is for individuals to be free. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. As someone, yeah. someone I admire once wrote in a book. It's, uh, that is sort of the contradiction. And I, I think about uh, uh, Bernie who... I don't know if you've worked with him directly on criminal justice. I know you've worked with him on war powers. And, you know, a, a Bernie stump speech would, would rail about mass incarceration, uh, would rail about permanent war. 
And by the end of it, he said, that's why we need to expand government. So there's sort of that, that cognitive disconnect there um, because the police brutality comes from unrestrained government power. Yes. By definition. Yes. And I don't, I don't quite understand why this isn't a teachable moment as to why we should actually embrace the Constitution, embrace limits and on, on government power. And, and I think we need to get at that. But the tragedy of shifting from um, real abuses in the criminal justice system, which are clearly there, and you've been a leader on this, um, to let's abolish capitalism um, squandered, I think, an opportunity to force both Republicans and Democrats to do something about the system. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, yeah, that idea is not lost on me. And this is an, an idea that I routinely bring up with my progressive colleagues, including Bernie Sanders. Yeah, uh, I, I thank him from time to time for being a conservative uh, uh, slash libertarian when it comes to war power, criminal justice reform, things like that. Um, uh, in response, in part, to a, a TV interview that Bernie Sanders and I were doing together one time, he was getting mic'd up 10 seconds before we went on. He turned to me and he said, anything to be on TV with a fellow progressive. <laughs> but uh, uh, look, his, his ideals. Your it, opponent's going to use that in your next election. Sure, right? sure. Yeah. And, it, you know, uh, look, I, I, I don't care what label you attach to it. If it's pro-freedom, if it's pro, if it's in favor of re restraining the power of government to erode liberty and to take life and property, we should be all for that. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't really divide between red and blue. It's it's about whether or not you you believe in human dig dignity or right. you believe in government power. Right. It, it, and and mo most relevant to our time. It's about Washington, D.C. versus everyone else in America, really more than it is about red versus blue. And we, we didn't talk about this part of your history, but you, you've been a leader on criminal justice reform, and that came from your experience as being on the other side of the fence. Yes, I, I was a prosecutor. Uh, and uh, while I was a prosecutor, I became aware of uh, some instances in which our laws made no sense. Uh, like when I saw the young man named Weldon Angelos sent away to prison on a minimum mandatory sentence. He's, he's going to be on the show soon. Oh, Weldon's yeah. going to be on the yeah. show. That's yeah. fantastic. I love Weldon. Um, uh, he, he miraculously is out of prison now. But uh, Weldon Angelos' story is one of the things that got me interested in criminal justice reform. When the judge sentenced him to 55 years, and he talked about how wrong it was, but he had no choice. He said, only Congress can fix this problem. And uh, nearly a decade later, when I found myself in the Senate, I, I remembered that and I got to work. It's, it strikes me as an obviously good political issue um, to take on this system, um, but you've, you've been sort of lonely in this fight. There's, there's, there are plenty of Republicans and plenty of Democrats, including the candidate for president, who was the architect of mandatory minimums and, and mass incarceration What's the, what's the contradiction there? It's interesting. Um, for a long time, it, it was, I've been working on this nearly the entire time I've been in the Senate, which is nearly a decade now. Um, for a long time, it was a very lonely battle. It was me and a bunch of progressives. Uh, little by little, we would pick up Republicans here and there. You know, the, Rand Paul, of course, was, was a big fan of it. And we had him from the beginning. But other than Rand and myself, it was it, it, the two of us and a bunch of Democrats for quite a while. Little by little, we gained momentum. We started picking off Republicans one at a time. And when we passed the First Step Act, we ended up with 87 votes in favor of it. Now, there's still a lot more to be done. And it's still not easy to gain momentum on it where it doesn't exist because there is no there's no massive fundraising potential from this. There's, there is not a lot of... Um, uh, big corporate interests who are in love with the idea of criminal justice reform. But it resonates on a very personal level. For those people to whom it matters, it matters deeply. And for those who value liberty, it should mean the world. And yeah. that's why I pursue it. Yeah. So when we were filming uh, the third episode, Article 1, Section 3, um, we had a conversation off camera, which I wish it would have been on camera, but we're about to put it on camera. And now you're anxious because you don't know what we were talking about. But, but you made what I thought was a really profound point 
about impeachment and that the, the impeachment process is in this section of the Constitution, um, that there is empirically, there has been an escalation of attempts to impeach a president as the president and the powers of the executive have become completely unleashed and unfettered um, to the point where um, you know the, the political parties say, if we don't have the presidency, we have nothing, which is contra everything that, that Article One lays out. Um, do you remember this conversation? Yes. Yeah, let's, let's talk about this, because people need to understand this, and I think, at least in part, explains um, the proceedings against President Trump, but I think it's it, not just him. Yeah, it's not just him. It won't be the last, and I think it will continue to escalate as long as we continue our march toward concentrating more and more power in the federal government and in the executive branch in particular. Too much of who we are as a country, too much of our national identity is, has been bound up uh, along with this shift of power to Washington and within Washington to the executive branch. Too much of how we envision ourselves is now bound up in the presidency. That's why people lose their minds over presidential elections. That's why, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, uh, Rand and Kelly Paul were with, uh, with me and my wife Sharon as we were trying to leave the White House. It took us about an hour and a half to make it across the street to where we were heading. Um, but for the fact that we took slightly different approaches to our destination. I would have, uh, Sharon and I would have been with Rand and Kelly when they ran into this mob. But if you look at that mob and how horribly they treated Rand and Kelly, you have to ask yourself, what were they doing? What was it that got them so wound up that they were willing to, to attack the nicest, sweetest couple anybody could ever know uh, in Rand and Kelly Paul? With the possible exception of Mike and Sharon Lee. Yes, yes, obviously, obviously. Uh, I'm sure we're a distant second. But, <laughs> but um, we have shifted so much power to the presidency that people feel like they can't exist without it. They can't define themselves without it. They can't survive without it. And that's why it's become so emotional. And that's why it's resulted in the abuse of the impeachment remedy. More things like this will continue to happen until such time as we get the balance restored and as we return the lawmaking power uh, to the legislative branch. That's going to be hard. No one will resist that more than members of Congress themselves. Yeah. That crowd would have done the same thing to you guys with the same irony of shouting at you about, say her name. Uh, Rand Paul, of course, was the author of the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act. Um, Either they didn't know it or they didn't care because the only thing that mattered was that that guy was Republican and Republicans are bad and we need to take those guys out to your point mm -hmm. about um, everything is wrapped up in, in not just political identity, but political power. Yes, yes. Um, we got to do something about that. Factions, you know, that's uh, it's why the, uh, the, the whole constitutional system was designed so as to create a a balance not only among and between governments and among and between the three branches of the federal government, but also just among factions generally in society. When you shift power in the way that they did and you distribute it in a way that they did, it keeps things uh, from, from reaching this crescendo level where it results in violence directed toward a, a single centralized power. And so predictably, our drift away from that has led to this. And my favorite uh, Mike Lee speech is a speech you gave to the Federalist Society. I think I bring it up every time that I talk to you, but it, it's to that point that, that federalism and the idea that we wouldn't centralize everything in one place is really the only way that diverse and different people of, of different uh, uh, backgrounds and different parents and different religions and different preferences um, the genius of America is that we all got along. And as we centralize that, and 51% of the public think it's their right to impose their preferences on everybody else, that's a, that's a recipe for, for disaster. It's a recipe for violence. It is indeed, uh, because people feel differently in different parts of the country. Federalism and the Constitution itself really... Uh, best exemplify our commitment to diversity in America, to re regional ideological differences. 
and local preferences. Uh, the founders understood that the, these differences would exist. The fact that, you know, today most of the people in Vermont would prefer to have a single-payer, government-run, government-funded health care system. Most of the people in Utah wouldn't. If the federal government weren't occupying such a significant portion of the entire economy, including the health care sector, uh, you'd have more Utahns and more Vermonters getting more of what they want and less of what they don't want. Uh, that's why federalism is so important. And that's why I, uh, I couldn't have been more proud when my daughter Eliza was coming out of having her wisdom teeth extracted and coming out of general anesthesia. She turns out she's a happy drunk. That's the one way you can tell when a Mormon is a happy drunk or a sad drunk is uh, when they get their wisdom teeth out. <laughs> Uh, her first utter words she uttered were, Mom and Dad, I love you. You're the best. And then she said, and I love federalism, and I love separation of powers. I teared up. It was my proudest moment ever as a father. So, so you're really corrupting your children much like your parents corrupted Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You have to corrupt them early and, and often, and it works. And, and our job with this series, this is a nice way to, to wrap this up. Uh, our, our aspiration in life is to corrupt every American with these these beautiful ideas in the constitution um because i i like i'll, I'll take it a step further I, I love factions but but when i really parse it down and maybe it's just because i'm a weirdo libertarian like i like factions of one because i have this theory that we're all a little bit different we're all beautiful in our own way uh, we all have our strengths and weaknesses and and it's the the freedom to pursue those things that that makes for um the, the sort of purpose and dignity to, that I think makes life worth living. Um, and it requires our government perhaps to, to read this document or, or better yet, it requires the American people to understand this document and demand that Washington follow those rules. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I, yeah, and that, that was the, the whole point. The discussion of factions in Federalist 15 was not to say that factions are bad, factions are good. And in any event, factions are a part of any society, especially any free society. We want them. The way that we make sure that we maintain harmony is to make sure that no one faction or group thereof can gain control of the whole of government. Because government is the official use of coercive force, and it's dangerous, needs to be held under control. So the Constitution line by line premieres tomorrow. We're excited about this, the project with Free the People, the Federalist Society, starring the one and only Senator Mike Lee from Utah. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube, click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.